know, I, I don't know about you, um, but this year, 2020, has just had a has had a tendency to kind of just stir up some stuff in me that I didn't even know was in there. So there's so many things going on in the world. It seems like every week, almost every day, you turn a corner and there's something else that just produces something in my heart that I didn't know was there. And I know that I'm not alone in this. I've talked with many of you and I've had conversations with many that have just talked about the, the difficult things that are stirring up in our hearts this year. You know, for many, uh, it's just a sense of uncertainty. You know, there's like this sense of uncertainty that's kind of stirred up in our hearts. For some, it's a sense of anxiousness or anxiety. You know, I think some are just marked by fear this year. For some, it's a it's a, an anger, maybe even a rage. You know, for some, there's a, a sense of loneliness of like, man, where do I even belong in community? For some, there's bitterness. For some, there's sadness. You know, we keep going on. All of us have had these things stirred up in our hearts that we don't really know what to do with. They don't feel good and we don't know where to put them. And I think sometimes there's two different temptations, uh, what to do when that stuff gets stirred up in us. You know, one temptation is just to run from it. I mean, to try to escape it and to not feel it, you know. And, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why. I'm just gonna tell you that's not the best option. You know, one of them, Jesus says, Jesus says we're to love the Lord our God with all of our, what, our heart. You know that if you run from what's stirring up in your heart, you're not really able to give it completely to God. And Jesus never tells us to run from it. There's another temptation, I think, sometimes when those things get stirred up, uh, and the temptation is to kind of just go, man, why, God? Like, to point the finger back at God. Like, God, why? Why are you doing this? I know that's kind of just been asked by many this year. Like, God, why are you doing this? God, why, are, why aren't you stepping in? Why aren't you intervening? Why aren't you working? God, where are you in the midst of all of this? And to feel this is totally normal. It's one of those reactions that we have of going, why, God? And the story that we're going to look at this morning in the Bible is a story where over and over again, God is going to be faced with this question. Like, why, God? Why are you doing it this way? Why are you doing it like this? We're going to hear this story. And the story that I'm talking about is the story of the Exodus. It's this story in the Old Testament. If you've never read it, uh, I just encourage you, you can even pause the video now. Go read it first if you want to. Read the last part of Genesis, the first part of Exodus. You'll get a good summary of what's happening in this story. But basically, it's, it's the people of God, the Israelites, and they found themselves living in Egypt where they once enjoyed some privilege, and now they are under a heavy yoke of slavery. And God is going to move in some mighty ways to deliver them out of Egypt. And this is the whole story of the Exodus. It means their, their exit, their, their leaving of Egypt. And in this, in this experience, once they leave Egypt, they have 40 years in the desert, 40 years in the wilderness. And over and over again, they're going to ask, why, God? Like, why are you doing it this way? And what I love about Deuteronomy 8 is that the Lord answers the question. Like, he speaks in to the crying out of their heart. And so this was the passage that was read over us on the video. And I want to just draw our attention really just to one primary verse in this passage, and that's verse 2. The Lord is asked why. And listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. He says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. And so you hear this, this is God's answer. He says, hey, I led you for 40 years in order to test you and to know what's in your heart. Now, this, this kind of doesn't sit well with us a lot of times, you know, because we kind of go, wait, he's testing me? And we hear test and we think like pass, fail, or, or we go, man, if God, he's testing me to know me, like doesn't God already know everything? So why does he have to put me through this to know? But there's more going on here than just our understanding of testing and knowing. You see, a, a test, uh, the, the word that is used here, in fact, if you're reading the King James Version, it says to prove. You see, we think test, we think pass-fail. 
We think, hey, if you pass the test, you move on. If you don't, well, you're a failure. And we go, wait, I thought God's love was free. Like, if I pass the test, I get it. If I fail, I don't. What's going on here? But what's, what's happening is this idea of to prove, to reveal. You know, recently, my boys discovered that they can create a bike ramp by putting a piece of wood on a cinder block and trying to ride off of it, you know. And if you've ever done this before, you know how important it is to test that ramp before you take a bike over it. Just insert video of Napoleon Dynamite crashing through a ramp and flipping over his handlebars when he hits the, the cinder block, right? It's like, we know we gotta test the ramp. But when we test it, we're testing it to see if it can do what it was intended to do. So we stand on it, we shake it, we bounce on it, and if it does not hold us, what do we do? We strengthen it, we reinforce it, we build it up so that it can serve its purpose well. See, guys, God's gonna test the Israelites because he has a purpose for them, and he's going to test to reveal, to prove what's in them so they can live into their divine purpose. But you go into this word, no, but now wait a minute, why does he have to test them in order to know them? Is, is God confused? Is it like a, hey, I gotta figure out this Israelite puzzle so I know what's going on in their heart? No, this word to know, it actually reveals an experience of. It's not saying a head knowledge, an awareness of. He's saying, I want to experience what's in your heart. You know, I've always told couples in premarital counseling that increased intimacy almost always leads to increased potential for conflict. Have you ever noticed that? It's like, my wife Amy, she knows me better than anybody else, not because I've told her a bunch of facts about myself, but because she's experienced me in any and every set of circumstances. She's seen me in the good and she's seen me in the bad and there's something that comes out when like the bad comes in that she experiences in me that I do a pretty good job of holding it back around other people. But she experiences it. She knows it. And so the Lord is gonna lead the Israelites to test them, to, to, to reveal, to prove, and he's going to, to know them, to experience them. And guys, there's something for us in this with this year. Just hold on to that as we move through the story. Now, uh, we're, we're gonna jump over to Exodus 15 because the reality is the Israelites are gonna go through many tests in the wilderness, but we're gonna focus in on just three tests this morning. Three tests they're gonna experience where the Lord is revealing something in them in order to experience it. And the first test comes in Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 22. So I'm going to set the stage for us before we read this portion of the story. So the Israelites have come out of Egypt. They have watched God split the Red Sea, walked across it on dry land. And at the beginning of chapter 15, they are just like worshiping their faces off. I mean, they've just watched water part. Their enemies swept away. I'm going to want you to imagine like one of our baptism nights. They are singing. They're dancing. They're shouting. They're rejoicing in the goodness of God. And for the first time as a people group, they're calling on the name of the Lord and they're worshiping. But then look what comes right after. Look at verse 22, it says, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert for three days. Guys, they went from the celebration into the desert. I want you to think about how our year started. We started off this year with 30 days of prayer and fasting and calling on the name of the Lord. We capped it off with a night of celebration and worship and baptisms. Many of you were there to experience the joy in the room and less than two weeks later, our nation seemed to come to a grinding halt and we entered into what has felt like a year of wilderness. Guys, we're, we're, we're in the same experience that the Israelites are experiencing. Look what happens. For three days they traveled in the, will, in the desert without finding water. Verse 23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. Marah is Hebrew for the word bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. 
There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He says, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. For I, listen to this, I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Guys, the the Israelites have been in the wilderness for three days, and they're thirsty, and they can't find water, and they come to this spring, and the spring came to be called Mara because it was bitter. But guys, this word Mara is not just describing the water in the well. In fact, the word Mara will be used later in the book of Deuteronomy to describe a son with a rebellious heart. It is a bitterness. The Lord is speaking an indictment on what he has experienced in the Israelites' heart. There's a bitterness there. And, you know, I, I, I know that this year has not started, has not gone the way that we anticipated. And the reality is, I remember the very beginning of this year, I experienced this bitterness rising up in me. <coughs> I couldn't get what I wanted. I couldn't have things the way I wanted, and I was bitter but we've got to be wary of where bitterness goes. Here's how bitterness starts. A lot of times it's there's an unfavorable situation and we don't like the way somebody else has handled something and so we begin to critique them and we it feels like it raises us up a little bit and we're looking down on them, you know, like, oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. But you know, it doesn't do anything to resolve the situation, but the next time a hard thing comes, guess what, we do the same thing because it just feels a little bit better to be the critic than to be the one in the, solving the situation. And guys, over and over again, if we keep doing this, it's like this root of bitterness just seeps down into our heart and if we don't check it, the root of bitterness will sour you from the inside out and you will be a sour, bitter human being. Because this is not what God wants for the Israelites. Not, you gotta see his response. The water is bitter. He experiences their hearts as bitter. And what does he do? He, he provides a solution for the water. And he throws a stick. It's this mysterious thing where they throw a stick in the water and it becomes good. But that's not the most important thing. More than just a stick in a well, the Lord gives his people his name in verse 26. He says, I am Yahweh Rapha. I am the Lord who heals you. Guys, the, the Lord reveals that which he longs to heal. This testing is not God messing with you. He's revealing so he can heal. And you read the very next verse, it says they travel on to a place called Elim, where there's 12 springs and 70 palm trees. It's like right around the corner from their bitterness is God's faithfulness. So this first test comes along and it reveals a bitterness in the hearts of the Israelites, but the Lord says, I'm the one who heals. The second test is a little different. It starts at the beginning of chapter 16. And in the second test, What's going to be revealed in the Israelites is not bitterness, but an entitlement to their cravings. Look with me in chapter 16, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim. They came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. They'd been in the desert for a month. In the desert, the whole whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, "'If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt.'" There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. And you keep reading the story and the Israelites go out and they see the glory of the Lord in the middle of the desert and he provides for them in ways they could never have expected. 
Now, I've, I've read the story thousands of times. If you've grown up in church, you've heard the story of manna being provided over and over again. I think sometimes we have this impression that this is just the story about a group of hangry people. You know, it's that perfect combination of angry and hungry, and it's just this perfect storm, and so God has to feed them in an unusual way. But guys, there's more to the story than the Israelites being hangry. There's some clues in the text that show us what God is discovering in their hearts. The first clue, you, you have to go back to Exodus 12. You have to flip there now, I'll just tell you. In Exodus 12, God, the, the Bible tells us that as the Israelites leave Egypt, they leave with flocks and herds, tons of livestock. So I want you to picture this. While they're sitting there complaining about not having food, they're surrounded by goats and sheep and chickens and oxen. And it's like, wait a minute, there's plenty of food available. What is happening in their hearts as they're doing this? And the clue to this comes uh, from Psalm chapter 78. I'm going to read verse 17 and 19. This is uh, Israelites processing their experience much later on, looking back on what was happening in the desert. Look at verse 17 of Psalm 78. It says, but they continued to sin against him. Rebelling in the wilderness against the Most High, they willfully put their God to the test by demanding the food that they craved. They spoke against God. They said, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? See, guys, this was not just a situation where the Israelites were hungry and angry. They were demanding the food that they craved. They didn't just want any food. They wanted the food that they craved, the food that they desired. And they began grumbling and putting God to the test, saying, hey, can you really make a banquet for us here in the wilderness? And some people go, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought they were slaves in Egypt. And that's true, they were slaves, but guys, they were slaves living in the land called Goshen, which was the most fertile part of all of Egypt. And yes, their slavery brought a lot of hardship to them. But guys, their hardship at least entitled them to some predictability and to some convenience. And they had grown entitled to the things that they craved, and they'd begun to confuse that which they craved and that which they needed. Guys, I, I don't know if that speaks to you in our culture or in our time right now. It's like I remember when this whole pandemic thing started and I couldn't go to a restaurant. My pantry's loaded with food, and I'm like, man, what in the world? Why can't I go to a restaurant? I want to go out to eat. It's like I'm suddenly I'm like entitled to my craving. I don't want just any food. I want the kind of food the way I want it, when I want it. Guys, we live in a culture, in a nation where we have become entitled to that which we crave. If we can't have what we want and have it right now, then man, it just stirs up all this kind of grumbling and complaint within us. They were entitled to what they craved. And yet I love, you know, it's like, man, before we see what God does, we've got to be able to see ourselves in this. See, God is going to say, hey, listen, you're craving this certain thing, but you are not meant to live just on bread alone. That's what he says in Deuteronomy 8. But you are meant to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, he goes, it's not the things you think you need to sustain you. You need me to sustain you. And guys, I've, I've seen this. I spoke about this a few weeks ago, but I've seen this in the church where we go, yeah, man, we just want to worship. We want, we want God. But what we really mean is we want a certain type of gathering. We want a certain type of worship experience. We, we have grown entitled to that which we crave, and we miss what, right in front of us what God is trying to do. Because see, what God does in this moment with the Israelites, he says, hey, I know what you're craving. I understand what you're craving, but I'm going to give you something that you never could have imagined before. I'm going to feed you in a way that you've never experienced. I'm literally going to give you the bread of heaven. Dew is going to turn into bread on the ground, and you will eat, and you will have enough. And guys, I just want to—we've got to check our hearts. If God is stirring up an entitlement to your cravings, could it be 
that right now God is trying to do something he's never done before, that we've never experienced, if we will have the eyes to see it. But we have got to stop complaining about what we don't have and ask the Lord to show us what we do have. And so in the moment of, of testing, bitterness comes up and God says, I'm the Lord who heals you. In the moment of testing, this entitlement to cravings is revealed and the Lord says, I'm going to feed you in ways you could never imagine. Now, there's a whole lot more in this chapter about what the Lord is teaching them about their pace of life and how hard they work and the importance of Sabbath. We don't have time for that today, but man, there's so much for our culture right there in that. But we're going to go to a third test in chapter 17. This test, if the first one was bitterness and then it was entitlement to craving, this third test is going to reveal a rage, and even a rage that leads to violence. Look at verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink, so they quarreled with Moses, and they said, "'Give us water to drink.'" And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for, for water there. And they grumbled against Moses and they said, why would you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? And Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people, Lord? They are ready to stone me. <laughs> Guys, the bitterness has reached a whole new fever pitch and now it has turned into rage and a rage that is about to manifest as violence. There's this violence that's going to be poured out against Moses. And, it, you know, the people of Israel, what they're saying right here is they're going, if you read on to, to uh, if you read on to verse 7, basically what they're saying is, hey, we want the Lord to prove that he is among us. And Moses is going, guys, he parted the sea. He put manna on the ground. He's, he's revealed himself to heal you. He gave you water to drink and springs to drink from. And they're like, prove it. Prove that you're with us, God. Prove that you're with us. And they are enraged. You know, guys, I, I, look, I look kind of around our culture, look around our nation. You don't have to look very hard to feel the rage that is sometimes simmering under the surface and sometimes boiling over. You just take a brief kind of survey of any social media feed or watch the news for a little bit and you can feel the rage. And guys, the rage is not limited to the right or to the left. It's not even limited to a particular issue. It's like it almost doesn't matter what issue it is. There's a rage rumbling under the surface of our nation. And guys, the world, the world has only provided us one way to deal with our rage. It says that when you have that rage, you pour it out on whoever you perceive to be the source, or you pour it out on whoever stands in an opposition position than you do, you pour the rage out on them. And that kind of rage turns to violence. And guys, hear me very clearly. I know most of us are not plotting how we're going to stone somebody because we're so angry, although some are in our nation. Most of us aren't there, but guys, we may not pick up physical stones, but we are very quick to want to stone with our words. We will let that rage boil over and allow it to become violence towards other human beings and the things that we write behind the safety of our keyboard. Mm. We, will, we will let the rage burn up in us until the, we, we will say unnecessary things and unkind things to tear people down and to rip them down, to cancel whatever influence they thought they had. We will rip it apart because of the rage that's burning up in us. And this is the pattern of the world. And as the people of Jesus, we have to ask the question, will we deal with our rage like the world does or will we follow in the footsteps of Jesus? And guys, this story gives us this beautiful picture of the heart of our God when it comes to how you deal with rage. You got to keep reading to see this picture. Uh, I'm greatly indebted uh, to, to Marty Solomon, a guy over, he does a the Bama, Bama Discipleship Podcast. I encourage you to check it out. But man, he helped me understand this text in such beautiful ways. Look in verse 5. 
So the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. I love this. Moses is like, God, they're going to stone me. He's like, go stand in front of them, Moses. <laughs> he says, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Guys, there's this really beautiful thing that's happening that often eludes us because of the translation from Hebrew to English. But there's this picture that is being painted. First, you got to notice that he says, hey, I want you to take the elders with, with you to Horeb. Horeb is another word for Mount Sinai. Now, the Israelites are at Rephidim. Most scholars think that that's about a 17-mile walk from Rephidim to Horeb. Couldn't God just have him strike any rock at Rephidim and bring forth water? Why in the world does he want Moses to take the elders with him 17 miles to the mountain of God? He says, take your staff. Guys, this staff throughout the whole story of the Exodus, this is the staff with which God executes judgment over Egypt. He says, hold the staff out and the Nile will turn to blood. You hear this picture and immediately you go, oh man, God's judgment is about to come in the face of the people's rage and testing the Lord. So Moses takes the staff with the elders. He comes to the mountain of God, and then you have this weird phrase where the Lord says, I will stand before you by the rock. It's this Hebrew word, panim. And it means he's standing face to face with Moses or between Moses and the rock. And he says, Moses, I want you to strike the rock. Strike the mountain of God. And the word there is strike to kill. And guys, the picture that God is painting for Moses and the Israelites is very clear. He's saying, Moses, listen, I know these people deserve judgment, but I want you to hit me. Now, Moses doesn't literally hit God, but he strikes the mountain of God where God says he is standing. And as God absorbs the blow, living water comes flowing out. And guys, this isn't a trickle. Remember, the Israelites are 17 miles away. This is a river that gushes out of the mountain of God to water the people of Israel. Such an important picture for us here, guys. You gotta look at what God is doing. How, how, do we, how do we respond like Jesus in the face of rage? How do we do it? Because guys, the world is going to say, hey man, if, if somebody hurts you, you hurt them back, retaliation. And Jesus is gonna say, turn the other cheek. The world's gonna say, pour out your rage. Jesus says, I lay down my life. The world is going to say, promote yourself and your agenda. Jesus is going to say, self-sacrifice is the way to my kingdom. Guys, when the world looks at us in a time of uncertainty, and I'm just telling you, the rage is not finished. We have an election this year, guys. There's going to be more rage. And the people of Jesus, we have to answer the question, when the world looks at us, will they see us participating in the rage or posturing the peace, the shalom of God Almighty that was made possible for us because of Jesus? Guys, we are invited to lay down our life, to be a part of that river of life that brings peace and sustenance to the world. God is working through us. Remember this whole idea of God testing. He tests so that he can strengthen, so that we can live into our intended purpose. God has purposes for us. He's, he's not testing you right now so that he can be like a cat with a ball of yarn just knocking you around. That's not what God does. He's revealing so that he can refine, so that he could strengthen, so that he can experience you, and you can live into your God-given divine purposes in this world. Guys, we're called to this. We're called to this. I love this picture of God. Man, when bitterness is revealed in us, what does God do? He says, I'm the Lord who heals you. And when, when, when our entitlement to craving is stirred up, God says, I'm gonna do something for you that you never could have expected, but it may not look the way you want it to. 
And man, when the rage bubbles up, Jesus stretches out his arms and he says, I will absorb it all. He even gets struck with a stick and water pours forth. And that's what he offers all of us, guys. There is hope. There's hope. There's hope in Jesus. If you don't know Jesus and this year has messed with you, fix your eyes upon him. Call out to him. Put your hope in him. He longs to heal you. So as we take communion this morning, here's what I want you to do. Get the bread, get the cup, and guys, pause the video if you need to. You can pick right back up where you left off. You don't have to finish live with us. Take the bread and share it with those who are with you. As you look at the body of Jesus, just share what has God revealed in you in 2020? What's he been revealing in you? And then take the bread together, and then take the cup, and just pray, pray for each other, and thank God that he is the Lord who heals us. Lord, will you minister to us now as we come to your body and your blood, Jesus. Lord, would you refine us, refine us, help us not to run or escape, help us not to just test you, but Lord, help us to receive whatever it is you're wanting to do in us. Make us look like you, Jesus. It's in your great name we pray, amen. I love you, Ethos. Let's break the bread, take the cup.